Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. A content warning that this episode includes discussion of grief over the loss of a child. Additionally, it was recorded in February of 2020, and the Cervantes family has just marked one year since Adelaide's passing. This episode is dedicated to her memory. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I'm here today with Kelly Cervantes, who is a mom and epilepsy advocate. Um, You may be familiar with Kelly's story because she's shared it very openly on social media, and she was also a recipient of a WeGo Health Award this year, which is how we connected. Her daughter, Adelaide, passed away six months ago, and it was all related to epilepsy, and she's going to talk to us about everything. So, Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me and and letting me share this community story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so important for people to be hearing Adelaide's story and you know, we're, we're making it count. So I'm just really glad you're here. And I think we'll start at the very beginning. Why don't you tell us how you first realized that Adelaide was sick? Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? So I look back on right after she had been born and we're in the hospital and the nurses were commenting on how she was a little bit floppy. And in my mind, I'm like, well, all newborns are floppy. My baby is clearly perfect. Mm-hmm. How dare you say anything? Um, but then we took her home and she started losing a lot of weight. She wasn't meeting milestones. Um, you know, by the time she was two months old, uh, her pediatrician was like, eh, you should probably go see a neurologist. Mm-hmm. Um but at that point, I was still like, I'm not going to be the super crazy freaked out mom. Um, I'm sure it's nothing. We'll push through this. All kids develop at their own pace. Mm. Um, so we went in and saw the neurologist. It took two months to get in to see the neurologist. So now um, Adelaide is four months old. Mm. She's still not holding her head. She's not making any attempts to roll over. Um, but cognitively, she's there. Cognitively, she's with us tracking, smiling, engaging. And at that point, the neurologist diagnosed her with hypotonia, which essentially is low muscle tone. Hmm. Couldn't tell us why. We start doing a battery of tests. Uh, Over the next three months, there were MRIs and ultrasounds and blood tests and everything came back unremarkable. Hmm. When she was seven months old, uh, Miguel went to go, my husband, Miguel went to go pick her up at daycare. She had a doctor's appointment and he is putting her in her car seat and she has the seizure. Mm. 
Hmm. The entire uh, left side of her face went slack. It almost looked like a stroke. Hmm. And it just so happened that three days later, we already had an EEG scheduled, which is where they put the leads on all over um, a person's head and they track brainwave activity. So we went ahead and um, three days later did the EEG and the results for the first time were abnormal. Mm. So we went into the hospital for a longer stay so that they could monitor her. And during that stay is when she was officially diagnosed with epilepsy, which is they actually did not see any seizures while she was in the hospital. At, up to that point, the only seizure that we had really seen was that one uh, in her car seat. Right. But they could see something called epileptiform activity, which essentially is just irregular brainwave activity. And that very often leads to a seizure. Hmm. They start her on an anti-epilepsy med, um, in my mind, I'm like, great, we got her on a med, we're good. Mm. Um, everything's going to be fine now. We've got the seizure, whatever thing under control. And now we can go back to force it, to looking at the hypotonia and why you know she's not physically developing. She actually had two of her best months, really, um, really engaged. Uh, she started to make a lot of progress. We had her in physical therapy and occupational therapy at that point. And then at nine months, um, my husband called me. I was actually in Chicago at the time. Uh, Our family was transferring from, we had been living in New Jersey. And for my husband's job, we were moving to Chicago. And I was in Chicago looking for our family's home. And Miguel calls me and says that she's doing this funny head drop, Mm. this weird, um, he thinks she's losing consciousness. He doesn't he's a little concerned. We decide just to take her to the hospital. And um, I get a call later that day from Miguel and the on-call neurologist um, informing us that um, her brainwave pattern was now showing something called hypsarrhythmia, which is um, only seen in infantile spasms, which is Mm. a particularly devastating form of pediatric epilepsy. It's fairly rare, um, and there are some frontline treatments that work in a lot of kids. Um, They are terrifying. Mm. Uh, One of them can potentially cause blindness. The other one is a high-dose steroid, Adelaide ballooned. Um, I I mean, she just looked like a giant marshmallow um, and was very uncomfortable. And if she was awake, she was crying. Um, Those drugs, we got rid of the hips arrhythmia, but we never got rid of the seizures. Mm. The infantile spasms would come back two more times in her life. And every single time the infantile spasms came back, it would wipe clean any development that she had made up to that point. So let's say she had been doing better with head control. Let's say she was bringing items to her mouth. Let's say she was um, eating by mouth a little bit better, swallowing, um, making better eye contact, engaging with us. Uh, When the infantile spasms came back, smiles went away every single time. And then we would get the infant, the spasms under control, but the seizures would would persist. Um, so she passed away five days before her fourth birthday. And I think from the age of seven months until she passed, the longest stretch we had of seizure freedom was three months. Wow. Um, so I think that's, it, it's, a, it's a misconception, I think, in the public that Epilepsy is something that can be controlled, be it by um, marijuana or CBD, which has been so widely publicized in the media, or one of the the many drugs that's available out there, or by the ketogenic diet. Um, But in 30% of patients, they remain with intractable seizures, meaning they are uncontrolled after med, after med, after med. Um, 
And that, you know, a third of the population with epilepsy is a fairly significant portion of people that you're talking about. One in 26 people will be diagnosed with epilepsy in their lifetime. Mm. Um, So while there are different types of epilepsy that are rare, infantile spasms, Dravet, as we are starting to learn more about uh, the genetic implications of epilepsy, um, the genetic causes, there are, are specific types that may be rare, but epilepsy as a whole is not. Right. Um, and, but there has been stigma related to it for centuries. Yeah. Um, Did you guys experience any of that stigma as Adelaide was getting diagnosed and treated as well? No, I think a lot of the stigma comes more as an adult. Mm. Um, if you can't drive, you know, well, why can't you drive? Did you lose your license for, because you were drinking behind the wheel? Well, no, I have epilepsy, you know, or in the workplace, if someone has a seizure in the workplace, are they considered a liability? Mm. Um, you know, do we need to call an ambulance every time someone has a seizure? The answer is no, you do not. Please don't. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's absolutely Um, right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think seeing a seizure can be pretty you know, certain types of seizures. I think that's another thing that, you know, there are so many different types of seizures. And and this is something people really don't understand about epilepsy. You no, know, yeah. they think of grand mal. They think of the tonic-clonic seizures that you see in the movies, on TV, someone's drug overdosing, and they're having a seizure. And that is what people think of. But you could be talking with someone and they just sort of blank out for two, three, five, ten 10 seconds And then they come back to you and they just had a seizure and perhaps you just thought they lost their train of thought. Mm. That was actually them having a seizure. Right. Um, So it's, there are so many different types. Adelaide had at least three or four different types of seizures. Is that common too? Like for, for patients to have more than one kind? Yes, absolutely. Which makes it that much more tricky to treat. So one med that we would put Adelaide on would help control one type of seizure, but it would aggravate another. Right. And none of these, uh, none of these prescriptions come without their side effects, which is very well known in, in this community, um, in the medically complex community. I mean, all of our, all of our meds, regardless of what the condition is, sometimes the side effects are even worse than what they're treating. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's such a misunderstood diagnosis in, in so that it's, yes, it is a diagnosis, but epilepsy is always a symptom of something else. Mm. So whether it is a traumatic brain injury, uh, you know, you could have epilepsy after being in a car accident, or we're seeing a lot of uh, epilepsy in our veterans who are coming back from wars after mm you know, their car has been blown up on the side of the road and they, they have these traumatic brain injuries. It's called post-traumatic epilepsy. And so that we're seeing it a lot in our, in our vets coming back. Mm. Um, and then there is, you know, the genetic epilepsies and, and because there is such a wide variety, you could have someone who is fully functioning, ludicrously successful, um, has a family and you'd never know. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have someone like my daughter. And so I think it can be very difficult for people to wrap their heads around a condition that looks so different in so many people. And it seems like the medical research hasn't quite caught up with the complexity of the the breadth of conditions here too. No. And that's that's something that I've really been trying to, to focus our platform on is really, you know, I firmly believe that the only thing standing between us and a cure or better treatments for epilepsy is more money. Yeah. And we need more money for research. And, you know, I, it is shockingly underfunded, mm-hmm. both by the government and in the private sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, full disclosure, I'm on their board, but they are the largest privately funded research organization raising money for epilepsy research. Mm. 
in the last 20 years, they've raised $60 million, which is phenomenal. Yeah. But if you but think about that, in the, that's over 20 years and yeah. $60 million and how much research costs. And this is the largest organization and this is what they've been able to do. Mm. And, and so it's just, it, it's so, it can be very frustrating. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> then, you know, we still have so much more that we need to know, but then the ramifications of that are go beyond that, that we just don't have the, we don't have the researchers doing the research. We don't have the epileptologists mm. in the clinic um, seeing the patients that the, the demand is. And patients will wait two months, four months, six months before they can get in to see. And these months are critical doctor. too. Absolutely. You're, you have a child or yourself and you're actively seizing mm. and you can't get in to see a doctor because there's just not enough of them. And, and I can only imagine every time I meet an epilepsy doctor or researcher, I thank them. I hug them. I yeah. give them all the adulation and praise because it is a really tough field to go into. Mm. 30% of your patients, you will not be able to help. Right. That sucks. Mm. That, and and you will have patients die and there will be nothing that you can do about it. And, and that's really hard. However, I do think that there is so much progress that can be made. And I really hope um, that there are young researchers out there, that there are young doctors out there who are looking for specialties where they can really make an impact difference in people's lives and in pushing research forward. Um, you know, science couldn't catch up to my little girl, but I, I absolutely believe that we can push science forward so that it can catch up to the next Adelaide. Absolutely. So you've mentioned one of the organizations you're on the board of. Tell us about all of the various levels of advocacy work you're doing here, because there's a lot going on. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I like to stay busy. I've had yep. to take a little bit of a, I've given myself a little bit of a reprieve. I mean, fair enough. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, grief sucks. Mm. Um, but yes, so through, so I'm on the board of Cure and assist with fundraising and, um, and going through and, and helping to choose which grants, which research grants we're going to fund. Um, also through Cure, I host uh, my own podcast called mm -hmm. Seizing Life, um, where we interview, um, we release a new episode every other week where I am interviewing people who have epilepsy, scientists, researchers, clinicians on a wide variety of topics um, to educate the community and, and to be a resource for, um, for all. Mm. Um, I have my blog, um, yeah. which is what uh, how we met. Yeah. Um, the we go health awards. So that's and your blog is called so everyone listening. It, my blog is called Interstones. It can yeah. be found at kellycervantes.com. Um, and, and we'll link to that on the episode page for sure. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so in the blog, I sort of I tend to write in a very raw, real, and hopefully sometimes humorous way about our it's journey. It's a diary. It really it is, is a diary of what you've been through. So uh, I started it about a year and a half ago. So it was really the last um, year, year and a couple months of Adelaide's life. And then I sort of picked it up again here and there, mm. sort of discussing the the grieving portion of losing a child and and hopefully the ambitions that I have to keep Adelaide's legacy alive because I promised her that I wouldn't stop fighting. Um, you know, I think Adelaide, Adelaide gave me an incredible gift and I wish that she didn't have to go through what she did to give it to me. Yeah. Um, but the way that I see the world now and how fulfilled I can be through advocacy, through sharing our story, through making people aware of what epilepsy actually looks like, how complicated this disease is, um, what it looks like just to get out of our house in the morning with her, all of these things. 
Um, and I never would have been able to connect with these amazing people in this community and beyond. Um, and for that, I'm forever indebted to her. And I wish more than anything that I could not have that and I could have her in you know whatever form, but um, you have to make the boast of the cards that you're dealt. And so she gave me this gift and I'm, I'm going to run with it. So mm. be that. And, and a lot of what you've covered in the blog too is, and through your social media is the experience, not only of, as you say, like the, the minutia of like getting out the door with her in the morning, you know, but also that you have a son, um, mm-hmm. you know, so he was growing up with a special needs sibling, you know, yeah. and, and what that looked like. And, um, really how you guys were fighting for more awareness mm-hmm. and more funding into research, as you say, so that Adelaide, her legacy will, will really matter. Absolutely. And, you know, epilepsy, I mean, like any chronic condition, it touches more than just the patient affected. It it, it touches all of their loved ones. And so Adelaide could never speak she couldn't have a voice and, but I can be that voice for her. And I'm, I just, I, I think advocacy is, is so important, but I am also able to recognize that I am in a unique position because Adelaide will never have a job. She will never have her own social media profile. She's never going to date all of these things she's never, her epilepsy will never affect her in a social stigma way in the way that it might affect someone else. Mm. So I can, I can get out there and I can talk about it. No one, I I don't have to deal with the stigma aside from someone maybe being annoyed that once again, Kelly is out there on another (laughs) epilepsy awareness day. Oh my goodness. Is that... (laughs) Well, how Here dare she they goes again? Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm pretty sure you've earned her soapbox. So <laughs> uh, thank you. Mm. Uh, so to that extent, I, I'm fully aware that I I am luckier than most in this advocacy world, where I don't I don't have the personal stigma. I don't sure. have to worry about that. So to me, that means that I have that much more responsibility to get out there and to share what these experiences are like and to educate and to bring awareness and hopefully through that more research. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you touched on as well is, is the lack of education, you know, the lack of, of even specialists that there aren't enough doctors out there to treat these um, varying epileptic conditions. Can you talk us through ways in which, like, I I know based on your experience, there were definitely ways in which it didn't work with the healthcare system, but were there ways in which it really did work and did function well in any part of the experience? And, and can you imagine or even suggest ways that we could immediately try to fix the problem? Well, I think, so one of the tricky things about epilepsy is that it is affects the brain. So the brain controls the rest of the body. A lot of people with epilepsy don't just have seizures. Right. They have other pieces that are affected, many other comorbidities. So someone with seizures may also, it's often there are mental health issues coupled right. with that. In Adelaide's situation, I mean, we had pulmonology, we had cardiology, we had um, allergy and immunology. I mean, she had six or seven specialists at any given time Mm. in her life. So it was important to me, and it took a while, but to have the fight, to find the right doctors who were willing to work together and to not accept no. I needed to know that her allergist who would be speaking with her epileptologists because Adelaide seizures were very much related to inflammation. Mm. So the two went hand in hand. She would have these horrible allergic reactions mm. with major inflammation and then the seizures would go out of control. Sure. So I needed to know that they were communicating because there were treatments that we could do together jointly. Like mm. maybe one knew about something that the other 
didn't. So I went, I met with many different doctors in many different specialties before I found a team that was willing to work together. And there are doctors out there who are willing to fight for, for ourselves, for our children. And you just have to get out there and find those doctors, but they're there. Mm. Um, It just takes a little extra work and you have to have the fight. The other thing I would say is that, and it's, I struggled with this early on because it felt like such a huge burden, but for the caregiver, you know, your loved one or for the patient, you know, yourself Mm. better than anyone else in that room. I used to walk in to the office and if a doctor would challenge me on something, I'd be like, that's fair. I understand that you have a degree in this and you have, you know, decades of working in the healthcare industry. However, I am with my daughter 365 days a year, 24 Mm -hmm. hours a day. So I know her best and we will work together as a team on this. I am not inferior to you. And I think you have to have that confidence walking in there because these doctors are amazing, but they don't know everything. And it's very easy to just accept what they're saying. And, you know, fingers crossed more than, more than not, they do have the experience and they do know, but if something is not sitting right in your gut, I I can't tell you how many mothers I've spoken to who are like, thought that their child was doing a funny behavior, like questioning if it was a seizure. And they took them into the pediatrician and the pediatrician was like, ah, no, they're just colicky or they're Mm -hmm. just, it's just reflux or something. And they keep seeing it and it's not seen right. And then they take them into the emergency room and it's seizures. Right. So you have, you have to have the fight, you know, in your gut when something is not right. And then you have to find the doctors who will listen and, and it's a journey and it's, it's hard, but they're out there and, and it saved, it gave us at least two extra years with Adelaide because we found those doctors. Mm. And do you think that I mean, you said that pretty early on the doctors, they knew that what was going on. Once you were starting to see specialists, you didn't really have to argue that that Adelaide was going through these seizures and, and that she had this condition. But do you think that there was any, like in, in the situation when you were meeting various doctors and specialists, do you think that at any point there was also, they took you more seriously or less seriously at different points based on her presentation? Absolutely. And I, I learned probably within the first year that if I used their words, Hmm. if, if I used the doctor lingo, they took me much more seriously. Hmm. So if instead of calling it a spinal tap, I called it a lumbar puncture. If, um, I can't think of another example off the top of my head, but, no, but you're I using used, their terminology. Using their language. Their, I listened to the words that they used mm-hmm. and then I would write them down and then try and remember them. And if I could regurgitate those words back to them, then they respected me much more. And so frequently I would have the nurses or the doctors ask me if I had, if I was in the medical field and I, Absolutely not. I got my worst <laughs> degree ever in human physiology my junior year of, of high school. I, mm-hmm. I'm not a, a doctor uh, or medical professional, um, except by practice every day for the last four years. But well, yeah, that's half a medical <laughs> degree. So <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Um, but I so but you learn their words and you talk like them. And then you earn their respect and you can get a lot farther. You can get more answers from them. You can get more information from them. And then do your own research. Educate yourself on the condition. Educate yourself on the side effects of the drugs so that you go in there with these educated questions. You're going to get educated answers back. And that just makes such a big difference if you are invested in the knowledge. Absolutely. And I think 
you know, one thing we touched on here, but haven't delved too much into is this concept of grief as well. You know, that the grieving process, you having lost Adelaide is as much a part of the chronic illness experience as anything else, because this is always, you know, this is always something that could potentially happen. This is something that, you know, for people living with chronic illness, there's often the grieving of their former selves. I'm sure you went through a process when she was diagnosed and as you were trying to take everything on and, and really fully understand what was going on with her. What has the process been like for you as you've spent the last few months? I know, you know, I saw you two weeks after Mm -hmm. um, that's when we first met. And I mean, definitely that was, none of this is easy, but can you provide any insights for our listeners on, on what that grieving process is like and, and how to move through it with such grace as you guys have? Thank you. I, I, you know, I had hoped when we knew when Adelaide was in hospice and we knew that we were losing her, I remember hoping that because we had spent so much time grieving her while she was alive, that maybe that would be like payment, grief payment in the bank. Right. (laughs) And time served, if you will. Little did you know, I'm sure. (laughs) Right. That the grieving process wouldn't be so hard afterwards. Mm -hmm. And um, that was not the case um, in the slightest. And, um, And in these medically complex situations, it's the grief is just as complex because I I am relieved that she's not in pain anymore, that she's not struggling. Absolutely. I, I never question, you know, we probably could have kept her alive longer mm. with various interventions and we chose not to because she was struggling so much and she was in so much pain and, and, it just didn't seem fair anymore. Yeah, wasn't put, humane. No, to put her through that. And so um that's I, a huge that's a huge decision as a parent to I mean no parent should have to make that decision ever. No. Um so I I know we did the right thing for mm-hmm. her, but that doesn't mean that I wouldn't do anything to have one more day with her and that I don't miss her terribly and still talk to her every single day. And, um, I mean, you're sitting in her room right now. I'm sitting in her room right now, looking at all of her things in the room that we spent so much time in. And, you know, it's so quiet. Our, I used to call our house grand central station because there were nurses coming in and out and physical therapists and occupational therapists, and she would get infusions at home for various things. And then there was her oxygen machine and her pulse ox alarms and her feeding pump and, and all of this. I mean, her, her room had become a, essentially a hospital room. And um, I remember sitting in her room the day after she died and I could hear a, the baby crying across the hall and some pipe making some no, strange noise in our building and a, a dog upstairs and all of these things I had never heard before mm-hmm. because um, it was so quiet. Um, I don't think that there is any trick to moving through grief gracefully because I think it hits all of us in different ways. I think you just the first step is just to give yourself grace right? and give yourself time and give yourself, you know, this week I've actually, it's been, I had been doing so much better. Um, I'd been much more functional. I've been starting to feel a little more like me wanting to be productive. Um, and then my husband and I went on vacation last week and came back and I it, like had a major grief regression right. this week. Um, I mean, coming back home and yes, your daughter is still dead and Mm -hmm. that sucks. And, um, but I've sort of allowed myself to be like, okay, we're going to take it easy this week. Mm. I'm going to, you know, cancel a handful of plans Mm -hmm. and let myself just veg out and watch sitcoms on TV. And then 
I will make another effort next week. And when you're, I'm very, yeah. And I'm very fortunate that I, because of my husband's job, I am able to do that. I, you know, I was Adelaide's primary caregiver. She was my night and day. Every minute of my life was spent taking care of her. Um, so overnight my, my world entirely changed and that was, that was really hard. You also lose all of the people that were in your life. Like I didn't just lose my daughter. I, we lost her nurses who we had, who had become our family. We lost the hospital staff. We lost the doctors. We lost her, you know, her, her various therapists. We, you know, there's this whole team um, I called them Adelaide's army that mm-hmm. essentially kept her alive and, and helped us get through this. And, and, you know, I lost her and then you lose the daily connection with all of these other people as well. And, um, yeah, it just freaking sucks. Have you guys sought your own? I mean, it's interesting because we talk so much about, individuals who are living with chronic illness and they have advocates and caregivers and, you know, have you guys as caregivers, um, between you and Miguel and Jackson, you know, have you also sought your own follow-up care to move through this process and, and to do it mindfully? Yes. So we had, we actually had Jackson in therapy for the year before she passed because I wanted, um, and he's, he's older. He's older. So he's seven. Yeah. So he's three, three and a half or so years older than her. So we had him in therapy to try and help him process it. Our house was very stressful. I, Adelaide would have seizures and everything in the house would stop. She, a lot of times would stop breathing during her seizures. So her alarms would go off. I would have to um, if they went too long, administer an emergency med or try and get her breathing again. And Jackson was around for all of that. He saw it all. He would, in fact, if I was making him breakfast and she started having a seizure, he would be like, mommy, she's having a seizure. And then she, he would take her hand and start singing to her because he thought that his singing to her stopped the seizures. That's very um, sweet. It's very, but like how bizarre for a five, six, seven-year-old to that's his normal, right? So, And these are going to be the memories that he holds on to as some of his earliest as well. Yeah. Mm. So we had him in therapy pretty early on. um, And then for a little bit after her death, um, I sought out help pretty soon after her death. I probably would have been smart for me to start seeing someone before, but Mm. I didn't feel like there was time and I didn't want to be away from her. Yeah. Um, but I sought out help afterwards and, um, and Miguel and I just started, um, marriage counseling as well. Mm -hmm. And honestly, our marriage is, is in remarkable shape. We're doing very well, but we've been through serious trauma and, I think that it's just very important in the same way that you go to a physical doctor to get a checkup that you need to go to see a therapist every once in a while to to get Mm. a good mental health checkup as well. And um, there are a few things more important in my life than my marriage. And so Mm. better do everything I can to make sure that 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 stays strong too. Absolutely. And this is also your partner who you've been through all of this with. So only you two understand it on the level that you do as well. So exactly. Can you talk to us about the future of the advocacy work that you're doing and, and the future of fundraising for research initiatives into epilepsy? Yeah. So for me personally, um, I'm, I'm working on a book um, sort of based on the blog, but I, I really want to bring insight into this medically complex life, into the the pediatric epilepsy experience, and also highlight the role of the caregiver. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an often misunderstood and and underappreciated role. And I think we're just now starting to see it 
be spoken about a little bit more in media and articles. And, and so hopefully I can, can ride that train. It certainly doesn't help that my husband is Hamilton um, here in Chicago. And but that's and, also helped get you an audience too. That hasn't has it? been our platform. And so yeah. it, all of a sudden he becomes this, Broadway theater star and people care what he has to say. And so we were able to use that to really launch all of this off of and to bring that much more awareness. Um, So, you know, we'll sprinkle a little Hamilton in the book just for, for flavor and, and, and not for nothing. Our story is so unusual in that when Adelaide was diagnosed with epilepsy, one week later, Miguel booked Hamilton. I was in Chicago trying to find us an apartment and Adelaide was diagnosed with infantile spasms. Um, and then we found out that Hamilton was closing around the exact same time that it was determined that Adelaide's condition, her overarching condition, which always went undiagnosed. We have never actually found out what was causing her seizures. Um, uh, or any of the rest of her symptoms. And I, we took her everywhere, did so many tests and no doctor could, could figure it out. Um, but we discovered within the same time that they announced that Hamilton was closing, that her condition was neurodegenerative and wow. that we couldn't save her, that there was no other courses of treatment that could ever make her better. She was just, she was going to be in a permanent decline. Um, and then she passed away, and two months later, Hamilton closed in Chicago. Wow! So um, these really experiences these experiences have gone hand in hand. They really have. Um, four days after she passed away, we found out that Miguel was going had been offered Hamilton in New York on Broadway. I mean, right. it, it's just it's real. Like you can't make this stuff up. So I yeah. feel like it, yeah. <laughs> so we'll put all of that in a book, and then. Um, and does that mean you guys are also going to be relocating in the yeah. midst of this whole process? Yes. yes. In fact, yeah. Miguel leaves um, for New York um, next week. Wow. And uh, Jackson and I will join him at the end of the summer. We're going to mm-hmm. let Jackson, we figure he's had enough major yeah. changes. Let him finish <laughs> school and stuff. Let him yeah. School and, then, and then we'll get to that. Um, and then I, I will continue to do my research with cure, but something that I really am passionate about something, um, specific research wise that I really want to try and look into. In addition to epilepsy, Adelaide had something called mast cell activation syndrome. Mm. And the two really went hand in hand, uh, for her, uh, and in speaking with both her allergy and immunologist and with her epileptologist, as they both became more aware of these conditions, they have seen a lot of overlap in their patients. A lot of um, epilepsy patients having mast cell. And then I would, I asked a a friend of mine who has mast cell, um, you know, do you, do you know of other people who have epilepsy in the mast cell community? And she was like, Oh, well, you know, they have seizures as a side effect of their mast cell. And I was like, um, that's epilepsy. Yeah. That's epilepsy. And that's major. Okay. Wow. Um, So I, I really do think that there's some sort of, they're both, they can both be inflammatory. Mast cell Mm -hmm. is entirely inflammatory. Um, epilepsy can has inflammatory triggers. Both of them can often be treated with steroids. And so I, I think that there is some sort of connection there. And, um, you know, if we could look into that more, mm-hmm. um, so that's sort of, that's going to be a massive project of like getting all of these research. But it is inch stones, it. isn't it? It's like it, little bits, you know, you it, have to do piece by piece at a time. And I'm like, and if that, you know, if Adelaide's mast cell activation could have been diagnosed sooner, you know, could we have gotten that under better control so that we could have gotten her seizures under better control? Could we have had her for longer? Regardless, her condition was neurodegenerative, which was probably genetic and she was not going to have a long life. We had no control over that, but could we have had her for longer if we had known earlier what to look for? If 
the epileptologists out there understood that mast cell activation is a comorbidity mm-hmm. or if the the very few, I talk about there being so few epileptologists, there's even fewer doctor, um, allergists out there that really understand mast cell. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they could understand sort of the, the, the interconnections, um, I wonder how many lives we could save. Um, could SUDEP, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, which has been in the news a little bit, more recently, Cameron Boyce of mm. the Disney Channel um, passed away from SUDEP. Um, and I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know anything about his case in particular, but what if some of these unexpected deaths in epilepsy were actually related to mast cell issues? Mm. Twice Adelaide had to be resuscitated because of mast cell issues. But I think if she had passed away, they would have, the cause of death would have been SUDEP. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I don't, there's, there's a lot there that I really want to dive into and that I'm excited about and I think could be a really incredible legacy for Adelaide that, you know, if we can, if we can push research forward, if we can help the next child, the next adult, the next family, mm-hmm. um, just to have a few more answers, I yeah. give them peace, give them hope. Because at the end of the day, that's research gives me hope. Organizations like Cure give me hope. Doctors like Adelaide's give me hope. Mm. And, and that's really the fuel that we have to, you know, that we have to utilize in this medically complex world because on many days you don't have much else. Right. Absolutely. So we're rounding things out here and I like to wrap up my interviews with top three lists. And I was hoping you've already touched on a number of really amazing pieces of advice for our listeners, but I'm wondering if you have, if you could crystallize it into top three tips for patients, for caregivers, for anyone who thinks maybe there's something off, you know, um, or is dealing with epilepsy or dealing with seizures that haven't been diagnosed yet, what would you recommend? Um, My number one, if you think that your child or your loved one is having a seizure and you're not sure, videotape it. Mm -hmm. We live in an amazing age where our cell phones are right there. You can video everything. Seizures never happen when we want them to, Mm -hmm. (laughs) unfortunately. Um, So when you see one videotape it, and then you can bring that in to the pediatrician, you can bring that in to the emergency room and say, this is what I am seeing. Hmm. Um, the, the second one that I, I mentioned earlier is have the fight. Yeah. Trust your gut and, and make, you know, be, be that, be that medical patient advocate for your loved one, for yourself um, and don't give up. Mm. I mean, this is, these are life and death circumstances and um, play the stakes as high as they are and, and never leave anything on the table because um, you have every right to get all of the information and all of the knowledge and all of the possibilities and all of the treatments that, that are available. Um and then my third piece of advice is always just, just as much as anyone can, just to talk about it. Mm. Talk about epilepsy. You know, I, we would be in an elevator and Adelaide would, her eyes would be closed, but I knew she was awake. And someone mm. would be like, oh, she's so sleepy. I cannot tell you how many times we yeah. were like, oh, she's so sleepy. And I would be like, well, no, actually she had a seizure this morning. So she's now sleeping. You know, she's she's overstimulated by this environment and she can't handle it. So she's closed off because she has epilepsy. And just, I always tried to use the word as much as possible because I think the more that people hear it, the more they understand that it's not rare and that it's a problem and that it can affect anyone. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter where you're from or 
who you love or, and I mean, it is completely and totally non-discriminatory and 65 million people in this world are affected and one in 26 will be. And I just, those numbers are unacceptable and we have not done a thing to change them in decades. Those numbers are not getting better. And in, in today's day and age, you really have to hope that they are. So just raise awareness in your personal circles, on your social media, at school pickup or at your holiday office party, whatever it is, in any way that you feel comfortable, just use the word. Yeah, that's really beautifully said. Can you remind listeners again where they can find you and your work as well? Absolutely. So I am, my website is uh, www.kellycervantes.com. And then I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at kellygc411. Excellent. And we're going to link to all of this on the, the episode page. Is there anything else you'd like to share as we close everything out? I, I don't just, I want to say to, you know, the, the chronic illness, the, the medically complex and, and specifically the epilepsy community. When Adelaide passed away, we received so much love and compassion and strength and prayers and, and we felt every single one. And we are just so incredibly grateful. This is, um, this is not the kind of community that you choose to be a part of, but my gosh, is it an incredible one to, um, to be a member of. So we are just beyond grateful to, yeah. to everyone. Kelly, thank you so much. It's been so great chatting with you. And I, I really hope that, you know, continuing to raise your voice, it's going to keep changing the way that we see these conditions and the way in which they're funded and treated. And, you know, we have hope, as you say, mm-hmm. there's hope. Thank Always you so hope. Much. Thank Always you. Hope. <laughs> That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.